I am a rather elderly man. The nature of my avocations for the last 30 years has brought me into more than ordinary contact with what would seem an interesting and somewhat singular set of men, of whom as yet nothing that I know of has ever been written. I mean the law copyists or scriveners. I have known very many of them, professionally and privately, and if I pleased, could relate diverse histories, at which good-natured gentlemen might smile and sentimental souls might weep. But I waive the biographies of all other Scriveners for a few passages in the life of Bartleby, who was a Scrivener of the strangest I ever saw or heard of. While of other law copyists I might write the complete life, of Bartleby nothing of that sort can be done. I believe that no materials exist for a full and satisfactory biography of this man. It is an irreparable loss to literature. Bartleby was one of those beings of whom nothing is ascertainable, except from the original sources, and in his case, those are very small. What my own astonished eye saw of Bartleby, that is all I know of him, except, indeed, one vague report which will appear in the sequel. Lightning Recap In Bartleby the Scrivener by... I forgot who the hell wrote this. Help me out here, Chris. Herman Melville. Herman Melville. I had all these names swimming in my head. It's hilarious. By Herman Melville. Bartleby would prefer not to. time we would prefer not to <laughs> i'm gonna run that into the ground <laughs> this is short story short podcast i am christopher j garcia here today with christy baxter and christy maybe maybe you've listened to the introduction you just read um what is that introduction from that is from Bartleby the Scrivener by none other than the inimitable, unforgettable Herman Mel Melville. Yes, between his time designing office furniture, Herman Melville made time to write this story that is one of the true bedrock foundational pieces of American short fiction. And it's also amazingly important to look at through several lenses. And the three that I see most obvious is the lens of mental health, the lens of Marxist literary criticism, and the lens of the general path of fiction. And I think we'll start with the last and work backwards. Sure, sounds good. So the story here, is Bartleby is a Scrivener. He's a guy who copies stuff. And uh, this reminds me of my favorite Mitch Hedberg joke. I wrote a screenplay. I showed it to a guy who reads screenplay, but he said I needed to rewrite it. I said, fuck that. I'll just make a copy. Um, <laughs> and eventually, he's a great Scrivener, apparently. But eventually, he starts turning down every piece of work that's given to him by saying his catchphrase, and it is a catchphrase, and mm -hmm. I will go to the death with this, 
I prefer, I would prefer not to. And then he keeps saying that and it drives his boss crazy. I mean, it would drive any boss crazy. It would drive anyone crazy. If if someone in your life, every time you ask them to do something said, I would prefer not to, that would just be infuriating. And especially as it repeated over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the big part of this story is as far as we can tell, there is no effector of that. It's just one day he wakes up and doesn't want to do anything. Yeah, he does seem to be pretty hard working, at least as far as the copying is concerned at first, um, to the extent that his boss, you know, our, our narrator here remarks upon it um, in a sort of way that pisses me off. Uh says, uh, I should have been quite delighted with his application had he been cheerfully industrious. It's like, no, he's doing the job you're paying him to do. You're not paying him to be cheerful, okay? You're still getting the work done whether he's cheerful or morose. It doesn't freaking matter. So, um... <laughs> that covered on the, under the uh, other duties as required portion of the oh. ad. Sure, sure, sure. Of course, of course. Have a fucking smile on your face at all times. (laughs) I would prefer not to. (laughs) And what's interesting is it it affects the boss so much so that at one point (laughs) he moves the entire company out of the building. Uh, (laughs) Which, I mean, if you are an employee and you are such a pain in the ass that the company abandons you in a place. <laughs> you have done something either very wrong or very, very right. <laughs> it's amazing how one person can upset a di- the dynamic of a group so thoroughly. Like, we, we have the dynamic of the group explained to us in mm, one might consider from today's literary perspective excessive detail. Uh, by the narrator when we meet uh, the the three employees of our narrator, uh, Turkey, Nippers, and Ginger Nut, which, you know, uh, five points for memorable names. So I'll give you that. And so we get the dynamics and there does seem to be a very, you know, that there, there are d- definitely quirks in this office, but everything's running very smoothly and on schedule. You know, in the morning, Turkey is calm and does his work well. Then he goes to lunch and he gets drunk and they come back and he's just a wreck. But, but in the morning, Nippers is all kinds of a pain in the ass. And in the afternoon, he's Mr. Efficiency. So it's, you definitely have everything balancing out, everything kind of working. And then in Pops Bartleby and the whole dynamic is just like destroyed to the extent that, like you said, they need to flee, flee. One of my favorite moments is when uh, the boss is talking to, I think it's Turkey and basically uh, explaining the whole Bartleby situation. And basically Turkey says, uh, you want me to wail on him, boss? (laughs) (laughs) And honestly, in a way, I see this as an absurdist 
office comedy. And you can definitely pull the threads and find uh, Pirandello, uh, Tom Stoppard, like the great absurdists who realize you don't have to go super far flung into the supernatural necessarily to get how crazy things can get in, in the regular world. Yeah, there are almost moments when Melville manages to make it feel like there might be something supernatural going on. Um, like when he tells us that Bartleby is staying, you know, like you, you never see Bartleby leave the office. He's there when you come in in the morning. He's there at lunch. He's there in the evening when you leave. And then we learn it's because he's living there. So that that like aspect of potentially something supernatural or something, you know, is kind of wiped away by this banal reality of, oh, that's just where he sleeps anyhow. Um, this is, in fact, where he's decided to make his home because he would prefer not to look <laughs> in the classified ads, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And so, like, yeah, there's there's definitely these moments where you feel like there's something kind of funky going on or otherworldly. But they're definitely the the banal reality definitely always pulls that crashing down. So the absurdity really almost becomes highlighted by the fact that it's real. Exactly. And what's fascinating about that aspect of it is this was written in, I think, the 1850s. It was published in 1862, according to the, the PDF. Oh, okay. That we uh, we linked. So, um, but you know, that doesn't mean it. Just because something was published in 1862 doesn't mean it was written the day before. You know, it definitely could have been written any time in the decade prior. <laughs> and what's amazing to me is exactly how modern the interaction between the staff are. This is an episode of The Office. It really is. <laughs> except for funnier than any episode of The Office I've ever watched. Um, <laughs> I think moving sort of to the, to the other lenses, there is a reading of this that Bartleby is a depressive. Mm -hmm. And he has reached the point where he just can't bring himself to do anything. He's just withdrawing from life. Mm-hmm. And the aspects here that really play to that are that even when he is given opportunities to better his, his place, he turns them down. And you can, please, <laughs> you can read that as self-destructive. And there is a reading of this where Bartleby just literally wants to kill himself the whole way through and he's trying to get as much done as possible until he cannot anymore which may make him seem uh, manic depressive as a sort of a, a overarching concept this of course at that time was poorly understood uh, oh yeah the, everything was um, oh my gosh the, the, the term escapes me but everything was under one umbrella, if I remember correctly. Or we might not even have been to that point. Because um, there was, uh, I'm going to have to look it up because it's driving me crazy. Old, timey, term for depression. 
depression or dementia, everything. Melancholia, maybe, I guess, but there was another word uh, that uh, it also encompassed like um, psychosis and, oh my gosh, there's some weird names. Um, and they're not that old. Black ass. <laughs> Certainly have the black ass today, author Ernest Hemingway wrote in 1945. We have from mental floss. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting that you will hear, you know, well, people weren't, you know, depressed in the teens. No, they were. Uh, they were just usually ended up outside of society, usually. Mm. Ex- and here it's someone who is dead center in the middle of a, what is American business at the time but is going through an episode and you see directly how that episode affects the people around them and how they try to motivate him out of it and none of it works yeah because it honestly that's unfortunately um you can't just tell someone you know hey cheer up or, you know, when somebody says, I would prefer not to, when they're depressed, saying, well, do it anyhow. Um, unfortunately, those don't work, but it's taken uh, society and, and humanity uh, a couple of million years to realize that. Exactly. And I think that is probably the most accurate reading, but it is definitely not the reading that Melville would have been going for. I really don't oh. think that. Certainly not. You know, I, I, I agree with that. That's um, if we're going with the author's interpretation, I, I don't think mental health was really something that that he focused too much of his work on or maybe even thought about too often. Um, what do you think he was aiming for? I think he was going for a proto-Marxist reading. OK. I think what he was trying to give was a view of the worker has the ability to affect change within the structure only if they are willing to withhold their labor. And I think ultimately, this is at once that statement coming out and the same idea that, well, naturally, this will be met with I don't want to say force, but this will be met with opposition that will almost inevitably, because the system is so much stronger than the individual, lead to the individual's downfall. I agree. I agree. I I think more directly, I think it's a commentary on civil disobedience that Mm -hmm. having um, been such a focus so recently uh, with you know Thoreau having published uh, on the duty of civil disobedience uh, in 1849, I'm going to act like that's knowledge that I just picked out of my incredibly large brain and not off of the glory that is the internet. Um, but I knew that it, I did know it was sometime in this time period, so I'm going to give myself a little bit of credit for that. But but yeah, I do feel like it is. It is. I, I agree with you on that. That that sort of same lines that. It's this idea that when one person tries to affect change against the system, unfortunately, the system will always crumble them. But then you have to wonder, well, 
Okay. What about one person and another person and another person and another person? What about when those people become a group when they become a system of their own? Do they just become a system? But that's not at all what he was going for because he didn't step that far into it. That's yeah, where I'm taking it. Although I do like the idea that the rest of the group realizing how good they had it, he said with quotation fingers, um, <laughs> decided to side with him against their fellow worker. Yeah. And that's interesting. But what's fascinating and the only thing that to me stands against that idea is that his boss was making concessions left and right and he was turning them down. Yeah, yeah, true. It's an interesting reading. I think there's a lot to say there that Melville as a writer would have been looking at each character's role in this story very thoroughly. This is very much a character-driven story, which is weird from a third-person telling of a very specific episode. Of a workplace comedy. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, workplace dramedy? I don't know. I'm not yeah. sure. It's Arrested Development, let's be honest. <laughs> it's Arrested Development! Oh my god! There are dozens of us. <laughs> but, uh, it's really interesting, I think, that when you look at Bartleby, Bartleby should be the least interesting character in this story. Yeah. Um, in a way, in a way. Okay, go, I'll, I'll let you finish. It is the mystery of Bartleby that makes this an interesting story. And I think that that just added soupçon of why exactly is he doing this and never answering it is what makes Bartleby an incredible character in the history of, because I can't think of a lot of other characters who fall into this, this affecting the reader by refusing to do everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I literally cannot come up with another one except for uh, this character Crispin Glover played called Bartleby in a uh, film, I think called Bartleby. <laughs> Okay, so what I was going to say is that you would think that a character who pretty much only ever says one phrase throughout a 30-page story is very repetitive, very, very much stuck on this one idea, would be very, very boring. But it's the fact that he's stuck on this central idea that is what makes him fascinating and what has made him an enduring character low these past 140 some something years 161 math is for people who don't read <laughs> it's a we need to make that a t-shirt yes finally we're gonna have merch dude we should have merch i'm gonna make that a t-shirt i've got canva do it <laughs> doing it yes uh i love i love this story despite myself um Melville never made, met a sentence that he couldn't overwrite. Uh, <laughs> okay, seriously, dude. Coffee on the microphone is bad. It's bad. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's dense writing. And it, yeah. 
And I think that's why such a simplistic story works. I mean, if this was like Chuck Paholnik, it'd be like, uh, Bartleby said I preferred not to, the end. Uh, but here, with the ornateness of the language that Melville deploys, we're able to get this sort of rounded experience. Yeah. Um, one thing I noted was this is from that time period in literature, which lasted quite a while when the writer felt the need to, through the narrator, explain his narrative choices. And that drives me crazy. It's like that the narrator in the second paragraph says, I'm going to describe this and this and this because it's important that you understand it. Trust the reader. Trust the reader. Please, I'm begging you. Now, I don't know. I have a theory. I don't know if I've talked about this. I must have talked about this. We've had a, a billion episodes. I must have talked about my fear theory at some point, haven't I? Yes, briefly. Yeah, my theory that most issues in writing come from the writer's fear. Uh, too many commas. The writers fear that they're not using enough commas. Not enough commas. The writers fear that they're using too many. And that's just grammar. Um, too many dialogue tags. The writers fear that they are, it's not going to be clear who's speaking. Um, too much description. The writers fear that it's not going to be clear what you know, who and what is where and, and what they're doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everything comes from this fear, this anxiety that pops up. And it's like, what if the reader can't see what I see and hear what I hear? Okay, so you've got all this fear and then it ends up being uh, overcompensated, all right? So the writer overcompensates and ends up spilling all that out onto the page. And I don't know if I can accuse Melville of that, because I kind of think that was just the style of the day. So now I'm working on this other theory that kind of is like they weren't afraid back then because I don't want to think of the, the great writers of the past as afraid because that seems not right for me, an unpublished, practically unpublished nobody <laughs> to call Herman Belleville afraid. I mean, there's a white whale. Like... <laughs> That seems pretty ballsy, and I don't have those kind of uh, that kind of equipment. So, you know, I'm just gonna guess that maybe, maybe my new spin on the theory is that our attempts to overcompensate due to fear uh, kind of force us to harken back to that style of literature, especially those of us who were raised on it, essentially. Or I'm full of shit. I don't know. Semicolon, she explained, continuing to explain, because Herman Elville was a jerk. Uh, <laughs> Obviously, I'm a little anxious about my theory, as is evidenced by my over-explaining it. <laughs> and see, there's... see? Exhibit A! Exhibit A! Whereas I'm like, fuck it, let's just do it. <laughs> see, the great thing about any theory about fear or anxiety is I can always be evidence. <laughs> uh most people most people uh what is it most people avoid the strange and unusual whereas i myself am strange and unusual uh most people ignore the anxiety and fear but i myself am made of anxiety and fear, so exactly exactly yeah but this is this is a pillar of american fiction i mean there's no question and oh oh absolutely yeah yeah, you see so much flow, so much of what even we've read 
particularly the stuff at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century, had a path through Melville and Bartleby, for sure. Absolutely, yeah. And I just wanted to say, oh, well, you know what, actually, no, that leads to another point that I, I'm, I'm glad you, you said that. Um, I noticed something when uh, he says uh, about, who is it, John Jacob Astor, that his name mm-hmm. rings like unto bullion. And all I could think of was Daisy Buchanan and her voice full of money several decades later um in in f scott fitzgerald so that definitely feels like uh the legacy is being passed on and uh we're hearkening you know or or you could say hearkening back to the past from f scott fitzgerald's point of view or some people (laughs) might say from zelda fitzgerald's point of view um (laughs) some people some people i didn't say which people you and uh (laughs) There's always some people who believe a conspiracy theory, so. Um, There are also some people who believe in coincidence theory, and they're the crazy ones. Um, (laughs) But uh, I think one of the things that, I think Fitzgerald actually is probably the most direct descendant of the style that we get from Melville. I think also Twain falls in that category as well. Oh, yeah. Um, And I think one of the reasons for that is that this is written to be read in a sitting. It is just not something that you read and put down and ponder and read and put down and ponder. This is magazine fiction. Absolutely, yes. Um, I also thought as far as, I think I read it originally at the perfect time because I think I read it, if I remember correctly, which... I'm old and I don't usually remember correctly, but I think I first read it when I was uh, a college sophomore. I think it's a story made for college sophomores, honestly. That time period in your life, not freshman, when you're a little, you know, little baby deer still with your legs all wobbly. There we go. Hello. Hello. Things have changed. I was saying something about this being a story made for college sophomores. Oh, yeah. And I remember the first time I encountered it must have been in high school, but I don't remember it. Mm. But the second time was about a week ago. So (laughs) few things happen. (laughs) Yeah, I just think it's that age where you, you just have just enough like cynicism and like don't give a crap. Um. And you're just past like, but some of it is like affected cynicism. And so you're really able to like buy into like, I would prefer not to in a way that almost makes um, Bartleby seem like a hero because I can remember all of us when we read it uh, in college being like, yeah, go Bartleby. We would prefer not to as well. Cynical? Moi? Um, (laughs) Yes. I mean, this is a great story. And I think... I think it's one of the great things about it and why it continues to be read is that there are so many ways you can read it because of that veil that Bartleby hides behind. Yes, Bartleby really makes the story. So I guess it's probably a good thing that it's it's, uh, named after him. Good point. Got anything else on this one there, Kristen? One little thing, and this kind of harkens back to your commentary that uh, Twain and Fitzgerald 
sort of our um, spiritual, not ancestors, but the opposite, inheritors of this style of writing. Uh, this was enough for me to screenshot. Uh, I love this. When the narrator is talking about uh, ginger as it relates to Bartleby. Ginger nuts are so-called because they contain ginger as one of their peculiar constituents and the final flavoring one. Now, what was ginger? A hot, spicy thing. Was Bartleby hot and spicy? Not at all. Ginger, then, had no effect upon Bartleby. Probably he preferred it should have none. And I thought that was so wonderful and wry. And uh, it, it was the beginning of the showing of a little bit of a crack in our narrator's facade. And it was just done so wonderfully that it just it just stuck with me. That is wonderful. And I think I think Melville, for a writer who doesn't write the style that I enjoy, uh, is actually one of my more favorite of that period's writers. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, I really uh, enjoy. I think when he let himself get just a, I don't want to say silly, but lighten up just a little bit. He could be uh, very charming. Christy? Yes? What are we going to read next week? Next week, we are going to read, for no reason whatsoever, uh, Wake for Susan by Cormac McCarthy. Woohoo! I'm so excited. Uh, I can't wait to meet that guy. He's going to just be a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful person I'm going to get to meet someday. I'm sure you're you're really looking forward to that, and it will uh, happen. <laughs> yes, and until it does, this has been short stories, short podcast. Well, less short because of the whole my phone <laughs> overheating thing. <laughs> yeah, it took like a whole hour. Mm-hmm.